And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. I will confess that even though uh, I come every week uh, recognizing that this is God's word that we are studying and that not one part is more important than the other's, Yet you can't help but come to a passage like this, this very high and holy moment uh, in the life of Christ that means so much to us that it's uh, a bit more intimidating to study and to prepare and to uh, proclaim. So, uh, So I come with a bit of trepidation to reflect on the suffering and death and burial of Jesus Christ. You want to do a passage like this justice, and hopefully I'll at least scratch the surface, the depths of what's going on here, for our encouragement and help. Today, there are three things that I think can be highlighted from this passage. First is the seriousness of sin. Second is the greatness of grace. And then thirdly, the demands of discipleship. Well, First, this passage shows us the seriousness of sin. We see it in two things. First, who is suffering on the cross? And secondly, what he suffered there. First, the centurion tells us that it was indeed the Son of God who was suffering on that cross. It wasn't just any old random person. It was God himself in human flesh, come down from his throne in heaven, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself of that glory by taking the form of a servant. And he was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by 
becoming obedient to the point of death, even death here on this cross. Now, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only person who ever walked on the face of the earth who did not deserve to suffer and die on the cross. Every one of us are sinners. We have a sin nature. We have sin, whether it be big sins or minuscule sins. Not one of us is perfect. No one who who has ever lived is perfect except one, and that is Jesus Christ. And here He is, where we should be, but there for us, in our place, the very Son of God. It was He who suffered and died on that cross. And what did He suffer? Obviously, uh, crucifixion was a horrible, torturous way to die. Physical suffering like no other form of execution known to man. And maybe you've read some things about the excruciating nature of the pain that you went through being crucified. Certainly Jesus was suffering this physical pain. And that's why back in in an earlier verse, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, not in the passage that we read today. They actually give him wine in the passage today to revive him because they want to see if Elijah's going to come and get him down off the cross. They don't want him to die yet. So they're prolonging the suffering by giving him wine. But earlier, as they brought him to be crucified, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which was actually a narcotic and was offered to all those who were being crucified to alleviate their suffering. But Jesus refuses to take the wine mixed with myrrh because he wants his mind clear for his last great fight. So yes, he did suffer excruciating physical pain, but there's something more horrific going on here, something that is unfathomable to our human minds. And Blake sang of Christ's suffering in that song that set the tone for what we are reading here. The last two, uh, two lines say, Sore was the suffering, By the body of Mary's son, yes. It was terrible suffering that he endured physically. And sore still to him was the grief, which for his sake came upon his mother. Jesus sees her, John tells us, at the cross, uh, as he's on the cross, and, and he commits her to the care of John, the beloved disciple. But we could add something even more to what he's saying. Even sorer still was the grief that he bore in his own soul for sin. Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So Christ was making an offering for guilt there. He was bearing the punishment that humans deserve for their sin. Well, what is hell? Changing the subject a little bit. What is hell? I've heard someone describe in the past that hell is a place from which God is absent. But that's really not an accurate portrayal of hell. Hell is a place from which God's grace is absent. But God's justice, His wrath, is present. Hell is a place of God's unbridled wrath. Heaven is a place of God's unending grace and love. But hell is a place of God's justice and wrath. Hell is a place that every human being deserves. Everyone has an innate rebellion against and hostility towards God. We discussed this last week as we saw the the mocking of Christ. And what Jesus is enduring in his soul on the cross is the judgment, the wrath that we all deserve. He is literally going through hell on the cross. And the text gives us several clues that that's what's going on here. First of all, we see it in the darkness. Verse 33 tells us that it became dark. Well, it's the middle of the day. It became dark in the middle of the day. We can look throughout Scripture and see that darkness is a symbol of God's judgment. One example, Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. This darkness that comes is a symbol of God's judgment. The day of the Lord, the day when the Lord returns and brings judgment upon those uh, who are against Him. And in this moment where Christ is on the cross, He has, he has become one because bearing our sin, He has become one who is against God. The Son of God has become one who is against God. And the wrath of God is being poured out on Him because He has become sin embodied. All the punishment, all the judgment, all the wrath of the day of the Lord is being unleashed upon Christ at this moment. And maybe creation is hiding its face. It's hiding from seeing the one through whom all things were created suffering on the cross. It's as if creation cannot bear to see it. We also see what Christ has suffered, that he's suffering judgment by what he says on the cross. He first of all says, my God, my God, and why have you forsaken me? Let's look at what he says first, my God, my God. He says this, and it's amazing on the cross at this moment, he is saying, my God. And that's an address of intimacy. You know, this God is my God, he's my God. We talk about uh, people we love. That's, this is my Sarah back here. You know, she's, she's mine. She belongs to me. We have an intimate relationship. She's my wife. We, we talk about, these are, here's my children, some of these over here, a few of them. 
You know, there's that, that intimacy that Christ is addressing his heavenly Father with. It's a covenantal address. It was the way that God said someone could address him if he or she had a personal relationship to him. And you notice that it's repeated. My God, my God. Now that doesn't mean much to us in our day and time, but in Jewish culture, when a name was repeated like that, it was a term of endearment. It meant that you had an intimate relationship with someone. And I'll give you several examples. When David's son Absalom is killed, he rebels against David, wants to dethrone David, and he's killed in the rebellion. David is distraught, and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom. He loved him so much. Martha and Mary, Jesus goes to visit. Back in John, uh, Luke chapter 10, John as well, uh, you know, Martha's doing all the work, and Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking it in. And Martha's like, come on, tell Mary to help out. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but... Mary's found the most important thing, and it's not going to be taken from her. But he loves Martha. He has a personal relationship with her, and he's expressing that. And then Simon. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. So again, he's got a personal life. He's showing tenderness and love in this repetitive thing. My God, my God. He has the most intimate relationship with the Father. And of course that's true. The Son of God had always been in perfect fellowship with the Father from all eternity. That's a mysterious thing about the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit through eternity, fellowshipping with one another, being completely uh, full of love and creation is just an overspilling of that love and desire and wanting to, to shower it on other things. The Son of God has always been in perfect fellowship with the Father from all eternity, but now He is forsaken by the Father. He is no longer my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the voice you heard at Christ's baptism or at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's no longer that beloved Son. But on the cross, He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was at that point when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing the infinite agony of hell, the the infinite agony of hell on the cross. But Jesus' agony in his separation from Father would have been infinitely greater than ours because his relationship with the Father was infinitely greater. I've explained it this way before, but I'll do it again. You know, if if you come up to a person on the street that you don't know and they say, I don't ever want to talk to you again, I hope I never see your face again. And you think, well, that that person's crazy. I'm glad they don't want to see me again. Uh, That's great. Go away. That's fine. That wouldn't affect you very much. You might even laugh about it. But if someone very close to you, uh, your best friend, or say your spouse or your your child says, I don't want to see you again, I don't want to have anything to do with you again, and abandons you, that would hurt much deeper. You think about the eternal trinity, perfect fellowship from all eternity, and that 
Christ here is being forsaken by the Father, abandoned, and he's, he's turned his back on him. Why did he do that? Why did Christ submit to this? It was for sinners like us. So we wouldn't have to be abandoned by God. He was forsaken, so we would never be forsaken. Have you ever felt abandoned or forsaken like you had no one in the world? Christ did. We only think we feel that way. We may have experiences like that. But Christ was truly abandoned by all humanity and all, all, uh, and, and all divinity. He became sin for us. He was abandoned and forsaken. And therefore, we are never abandoned or forsaken if we are His. And this shows us the seriousness of sin. Sin is such a serious thing that the sinless Son of God had to endure the cross, be abandoned by His Father, and, and submit to death to pay the penalty and take the punishment for us. Sin. That we so easily and sometimes enthusiastically commit. It's a serious thing. And we should take it very seriously. Evil here is being destroyed. That's what it took. If there was another way, it would have been done. But this is the only way that salvation for mankind could be accomplished. So sin is a serious thing. God's grace is greater than sin. The greatness of grace, second point, is seen in what Christ accomplished through his suffering and death. And the first thing that it tells us in verse 38 that happens after Jesus makes his final cry, you know, he, they, want to, they give him wine, uh, this sour wine mixture, to revive him a little bit to see if Elijah comes. Christ takes it so that he can utter this, his final cry. It is finished, the other Gospels tell us. It's an accounting term. The price has been paid. He has endured the wrath and it's over. Our salvation is complete. Some people think that, that Jesus actually went physically to hell. Uh, you know, maybe that's where he was when he was in the tomb, that he went down. No, he endured hell on the cross and he completed salvation on the cross. And the resurrection is just a ratification of what he did on the cross. It is finished. The payment has been made. Paid in full. It's completed. He did it. And he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I commit my spirit. He could say that because he was no longer sin. He was committing himself to his Father. The price had been paid. Salvation had been complete. And therefore, the next thing that happens, verse 38 tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this curtain was in the temple it was in the very center of the temple and it blocked the entrance to the very central room, the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies uh, was a place that contained the Ark of the Covenant, a symbolic of God's throne. And the only person who could ever go in there was the high priest and he could only go in there once a year. And when he went into to that Holy of Holies, he, he went to make atonement for the sins of the people by sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the altar there. No one could enter that room except the high priest once a year. They actually tied a rope to his leg in case he got struck down in God's presence, that he didn't enter uh, in the right manner. He didn't go through all the purification for his own sins because nobody could go and get him out if he got struck down in God's presence. They would just have to drag him out. So no one went in there 
And this place was guarded by a curtain. Now the one that, was, that is described for the tabernacle, the precursor to the temple, in Exodus is described as a curtain that was about three inches thick made of linen. I mean, we're not talking like a, a curtain that you have on your windows. This is a thick woven linen curtain. The one for the tabernacle, the, the temporary one that they moved around, the temporary worship place that they had in, in the Exodus, was uh, three inches thick, 30 by 60 feet. So it was no small thing. So when you think of a curtain, you know, I can go in our house and I could probably rip the curtains that are hanging on our windows. I could grab them and tear them. But these were some big, thick curtains. And it says that they're torn. And you would think it would be torn from bottom to top. But no, it's torn from the top to the bottom. Nobody went up there to tear that up. We know that God is the one that tore that curtain. God is the one that tore it clear in two from top to bottom. On that curtain, at least the one in the tabernacle, tabernacle were woven uh, cherubim. They were fearful angelic creatures, not fat little babies with wings that you see at the Hallmark shop. These, you know, we can, you can read about them in Scripture. Cherubim were fearful angelic creatures, and they were symbolic guardians of the holy place. It harkens back to the book of Genesis when mankind who lived in the garden, fellowship with God, sinned against God, they were expelled from the garden and what was placed at the gate of the garden? A cherubim with a flaming sword so that Adam and Eve couldn't go back in there to that place where they could have fellowship with God. And so woven onto this curtain were these cherubim which was symbolic of this warning. You, you, not anybody can go in here. There's no access. But because of what Jesus did, because this curtain was torn by God, the way is opened. The Jesus, the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who made atonement once and for all, He accomplished His work. The curtain was torn. The law was fulfilled. Sin was paid for. That which was lost in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve has been regained through Christ. Now there is access and fellowship with God. And we see this in the confession of the centurion. The centurion seems to get it all of a sudden. He's an outsider. One that should not be able to understand what is going on, but he seems like he's the only one that understands what's going on. He says, surely this man was the Son of God. This is the highest title for God. And it's actually what Mark is trying to get us to understand. Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants you to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And here's the centurion making that confession. The one who doesn't understand. He, this, is, this is a officer of the Roman army, a Gentile pagan, far from God. The man probably in charge of have, having Jesus being beaten and mocked and killed. But here he sees the way in which Jesus dies. And he says, surely this man is the Son of God. See, what Mark is saying here in this confession is, now the way is open, not just to Jews, but to anyone. Even the most unlikely person can now 
have their, the scales fall off their eyes, their heart open, and they can understand that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and he accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish. This centurion's confession comes right after the tearing of the veil. Anyone can come on in to have access to God, to have fellowship, a relationship with God. This would have meant a lot to Mark's audience because he was writing to Gentiles. He had a mostly Gentile audience. And for this confession to be by a Gentile was an encouragement to them because that was a big controversy in the church. Spurgeon says this, There is an entrance made for the greatest sinners. If there had been only a small hole cut through it, the lesser offenders might have crept through. But what an act of abounding mercy is this, that the veil is rent in the midst and rent from top to bottom so that the chief of sinners may find ample passage. This also shows that for believers there is no hindrance to the fullest and freest access to God. Oh, for much boldness this morning to come where God has not only set open the door, but has lifted the door from its hinges, yea, removed it, post and bar and all. We can come right on in. We are invited to come. Isn't God's grace great? Sinners. And our sin is a serious thing. But here we are invited to come and have a relationship with the Lord because of what Christ has done for us. Well, finally, and very briefly, this passage points us to the demands of discipleship. What what should we do now in relation to this? Well, let me skip to Joseph of Arimathea. Here's Joseph of Arimathea. It tells us that he was, in verse 43, a respected member of the council of the Sanhedrin. These are the people who started this whole thing, the ones who wanted to put him to death. The other Gospels tell us that Joseph was not in agreement with the decision of the Sanhedrin concerning Christ. He was a, a closet follower of Christ. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And it says there in verse 43 that he took courage and went to Pilate. He had to come out in the open. Now the bodies of people who were crucified were the property of the Roman government. But here Joseph comes out and has identifies himself as one of Jesus' followers, one of his disciples. The Sanhedrin would have known it. Everybody would have known it. The Romans would have known it. It was a public confession of his faith in Christ. And there's a, you know, just as a little side note, why is this here? Why does he give us so much detail about Joseph of Arimathea? Well, I think Mark is wanting us to know that Jesus really died because he gives us all these details. Joseph comes and asks for the body, Pilate is surprised to hear that he should have already died. Well, all the rest of them, you know, sometimes it lasted several days, this crucifixion. But Jesus has already died. And so Pilate is surprised, and so he goes and sends a message to a centurion and says, you know, confirm that Jesus is dead. And the centurion sends word back, yes, he's dead. And, and so he grants the corpse to Joseph. A lot of people think, oh, well, look, Joseph took him down to the cross before he was dead, and he didn't really die. And that's, then they spread this rumor that he rose from the dead. But no, Pilate confirmed it through a centurion and the body was given to Joseph. Jesus was dead. That's one reason that this is here. But what we see in the life of Joseph here is that he identified with Christ. And that's what we're called to do. Identify with him. Connect to Christ. And that's what Joseph had to step out with courage and do so. 
He says, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's what the centurion did as well. Surely this man was the Son of God. And here we see the ultimate purpose of the Gospel writer Mark. It becomes clear to us. He wants his readers, he wants us to confess Jesus as the Son of God. And to know that if we do, we have access to the innermost sanctuary, to the welcome and arms and heart of God. He calls us to see how Jesus died and confess like the centurion did, that indeed Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is my Savior, and I'm not afraid to to say it and to follow him like Joseph did. May God grant us the grace to see how Christ died and to identify with him and to confess him as our Savior and Lord. Let's pray together.